Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Over the past few weeks on Sunday mornings, if you've uh, been worshiping with us, you know we have been making our way through Hebrews chapter 11, a passage of scripture that's sometimes called the Hall of Faith, a collection of stories of great faithfulness from, from the Old Testament, highlighting people who put their trust in God above all else and reminding us of those stories to call us to that same sort of faith in God, in good or bad or whatever might come our way. And as we look at those stories, what we see time and time again is that in all of his dealings with humanity, God has been calling his people into life with him. That's the heart behind creation in the Garden of Eden. God placing Adam and Eve there so that they might enjoy a blessed life of dwelling in his presence, participating with God, intending for, caring for his perfect creation. And yet the story of Scripture time and time again is one of humanity rejecting the life that God puts on offer before them. In fact, I can't prove this, but I have to wonder if maybe at least part of the reason we are given a passage like Hebrews chapter 11, a collection of examples of great faith in God, is because we need that reminder of people who were faithful because there are so many examples of unfaithfulness. In the midst of all the positives, there is a dark backdrop of of lack of trust in God, of a refusal to follow his ways. Instead of enjoying perfection with God in Eden, Adam and Eve rebel. They eat from the fruit, and as a consequence of that sin, they are cast out. They're met with a creation that is cursed, that no longer functions as it was designed to do. Adam and Eve have children, two sons at first, Cain and Abel, and yet Genesis chapter 4 tells us about Cain murdering his brother. We keep reading, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, things are so bad, the text says that Noah is the one righteous man left on the face of the earth. God sends a flood, starting over with just Noah and his family, down to just eight people. And yet, things don't get any better. Humanity's still full of failure, still full of disobedience, still full of rejection of God's ways. And yet, God continues to work. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls to this man, Abram, and and calls Abram to trust in him and to follow him. He promises Abram, whose name later becomes Abraham, that that if he will walk with him, that he will be blessed. He'll be rewarded that his descendants will grow into a great nation, that the entire world will eventually be blessed through Abraham's descendants. So Abraham obeys. He follows God. And yet, just because God calls Abraham, just because Abraham has moments of faith, it does not mean that he's a perfect individual. On more than one occasion, Abraham fears for his life. And in order to save himself, he will pretend that his wife, Sarah, is actually his sister and will give give her up to a king of a foreign land in order to save his own skin. 
Abraham and Sarah uh, have a son, Isaac, and Isaac actually does the exact same thing with his wife, Rebecca, once. And the two of them together, they have twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and they raise what appears to be a pretty dysfunctional home. Uh, They they play favorites between them. Isaac favors uh, the older of the twin boys, Esau. Rebecca favors the younger, Jacob. And growing up in that, you might imagine, is uncomfortable, leads to even more dysfunction. God continues to work through Jacob, yet Jacob isn't isn't much better. He cheats his older brother Esau out of the inheritance that he was supposed to receive as the firstborn son. We find Jacob time and time again cheating people, working for himself. We find him bartering with God, coming to God and saying, I'll do what you say, I'll follow your commands, I'll do what what you're telling me to do as long as it benefits me. As long as there's something in it on my side of the deal, he too creates a dysfunctional home. Has multiple wives, ends up with four in, in total, makes it very clear to everyone involved that one of those wives, Rachel, is his favorite, and that Rachel's oldest son, Joseph, is his favorite out of all of his 12 sons. That creates a host of issues as well. Joseph lets that favoritism go to his head. His ego leads to dysfunction between him and his brothers, and things get so bad that his own brothers sell him into slavery. He's taken as a captive into Egypt. And yet, God does not give up on this family that he has called. This family that time and time again is characterized by infighting and backbiting. This family that eventually becomes a nation that is given the name as a whole. uh, The same name that God gives to Jacob when he changes his name. This name, Israel. Israel is a Hebrew word that means struggles with God. An accurate summary of this family if there ever was one. God continues to work. Because God has promised to work despite their imperfections. The story continues, this entire family, this nation of Israel winds up in slavery in Egypt and God sends a man, Moses, to be the the means of delivering them into freedom, into the land that God had promised to give to Abraham's descendants. And yet again, we find that being selected for so great a task does not mean that Moses, like Abraham, is not a perfect individual. He doubts, he questions God from the start, He, he asks God if he can send someone else and And yet, God continues to work. At the end of his life, because of his imperfections, Moses himself is prevented from entering into the promised land, this this land that he has devoted 40 years of his life guiding the nation of Israel towards. He himself is not able to enter. And yet, this is not just a problem for the leaders of the people. The nation as a whole, we find doubting God wondering if God is enough, wondering if God is actually able to deliver them. We find them fearing the other nations. We find them questioning. We find them being so bold as to, as to suggest that they were better off living in Egypt as slaves as opposed to walking in faith before God day by day. Moses gets to the end of his life and at the moment where we would expect applause or a a memorial built in his honor, celebration of all he has done, what we find is God saying that it won't be long after he's gone and the people will run to worship other gods. 
Nevertheless, the baton of leadership gets passed from Moses to Joshua. Joshua leads the people for a generation, and as he nears the end of his life, after decades of seeing God work in incredible ways, seeing God do miraculous things as they move into this land that God had promised to give them, not because they deserved it, but because he is faithful, Joshua gets to the end of his life as giving his farewell address to the nation before he dies, and in that speech, he commands the people to get rid of their idols to get rid of the things that they have been trusting in instead of God and God alone. Apparently Israel, despite all they have witnessed, God's power and his deliverance on display, they still feel the allure of other gods. They still feel the need to want to worship, to want to trust, to want to put their faith in things that are not God himself. And across all those stories, if we're looking at them with the right lens, We find glimpses of ourselves. We're given these stories of great faith, examples of what it looks like to trust in God, and we, too, find ourselves being pulled this way and that, regularly rejecting God and his purposes for our lives. We, too, every now and then, have to be reminded to put away our idols and to trust in God and God alone. Too often our story is one of knowing God's call, of knowing he is there, knowing that he desires us to live in a relationship with him, and yet choosing our own way, choosing an easier path of comfort because it's just easier. Maybe that's choosing greed over generosity, lies over truth, lust over faithfulness, pride over humility, status over service, anger over kindness. Most of the time, the human heart is like a grocery cart that has one bad wheel. No matter how much you fight it, no matter how much you push it in the right direction, it wants to veer off to the side. And yet, it's not just a problem in our hearts. It certainly is, but it's not just that. Our world doesn't function as it should. It hasn't since Adam and Eve left the garden in Genesis 3. We live in a creation that's broken. We experience disease, disasters, decay. Relationships don't function as they should. We find people betraying those close to them. We find people using people around them for their own benefit instead of loving and serving them as God calls us to do. The world doesn't function as it should. We find a world of injustice, a world where people are hurt by the people and systems around them instead of being helped. And it is certainly true that the world as a whole does not function as it should. And yet for all the problems out there, we cannot deal with those problems without first acknowledging that the brokenness we see begins and ends with our own hearts. The solution to the brokenness in our world is not just contained to dealing with the brokenness of creation as if we could fix the world then everything would be fine. It's not contained to dealing with the brokenness of our relationships, dealing with the brokenness of the people around us, as if if we could just get uh, better friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors, or just fix the ones that we have, then everything would be great. It's not contained to just dealing with the world around us, as if we could just get the right people into leadership, into elected office, then all of our problems would go away. No. Any and all thoughts and discussions of what's wrong with our world must acknowledge the fact And at the root of any brokenness in our world is broken people. And that we ourselves are broken. 
sinners who reject God in order to go our own way. And broken people on their own usually don't make the world a better place by their own might. Usually we just end up breaking things more than they were to begin with. We have all followed the pattern of those first humans, Adam and Eve. We've listened to the voice of the serpent in the garden. We've rejected God's call in order to go our own way. We've assumed we know better than the God of the universe. We've assumed we don't need any guidance or advice. We can figure it out on our own. And the end result of that disobedience, our rejection of God and his ways, it leads to the brokenness in ourselves and in the world around us. It enslaves us to that tyrant of sin, and it sends us on the path towards death. And scripture itself is aware of this reality, always seeming to strike a balance between the great calling that God has placed before his people while also being painfully aware of how far short we fall of that call. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul lays out the case over the first three chapters of the letter that all of humanity, both those of us who just completely reject God and go our own way, as well as those of us who think we can earn God's approval through being good enough, all of us, no matter where we are on that spectrum, we all stand before God guilty. Each of us in our own special way, having rejected him and his ways and deserve deserve punishment. And all of that argument reaches its highest point in Romans 3, verses 9 to 18. Paul puts together a string of of quotations from across the Old Testament to describe the situation of humanity far more often than we'd ever care to admit. He says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, all of humanity, even you and me, we are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those verses are about humanity, even us. And that reality brings us to the moment we remember on this day, the cross. The story could end with God's condemnation. The only thing we have earned before God is the just punishment of death. And there's no amount of self-help seminars that were going to get us back on the right track, to get us back in good standing before a holy, perfect God of all things. We had gone too far. We had done too much. The situation was beyond repair. And the story could end there, and God would be justified in doing that, and yet he does not. When humanity rejects God time and time again, God does not give up. He does not give up on you and me. He patiently calls us again to faith in him in spite of our imperfections and failures. And that culminates in his sending of his son, Jesus. The one who was perfectly faithful in every way. The one who came to proclaim the arrival of God's 
kingdom, the one who came to proclaim that God was acting through him to begin the process of making all things new, to undo the curses of sin and death that have plagued us since Adam and Eve walked out of Eden, and that we get to be a part of it, that we get to get in on the ground floor of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And yet, despite that message of hope and life that we were created for, as we've already read this evening, humanity continues to demonstrate its opposition to God. We return to the only move we know. We reject God, we go our own way. Instead of welcoming him in as he deserves, as our savior and our king, we question him. We wonder if maybe we can use him for our own purposes instead of submitting to him as the Lord and savior of all that he is. We go from singing Hosanna to the son of David on Sunday to shouting crucify him on Friday. As God has been doing since creation itself, Jesus comes to us and invites us into a life of faith, a relationship with our Creator. And as humanity has been doing since Genesis 3, we think we know better, we reject Him, and we choose the path again of sin and death. And yet, as Paul writes elsewhere, when we are faithless, he is faithful. He takes the punishment that you and I deserve on himself. As the, as the hymn that we've already sung this evening says, it was my sin that held him there. Our disobedience and our rejection of God leaves us in a position deserving death. We, we had rebelled against our king, the ruler, the sustainer of the universe. We thought we knew better and we simply didn't. And all of that pride, all that rejection, all that rebellion against God comes with the consequence of choosing sin and its partner in crime, death. And yet when God could have abandoned us, could have turned us over to the fate we deserve, the fate we had chosen for ourselves, he comes to us to offer us a life of faith. He goes to the greatest lengths imaginable by sending his very own son to go to the cross for us to die the death we deserved. And that's what we remember on this day. Each and every one of us had rejected God and had deserved death. And yet, God, as he has always intended, comes to us again with the offer of life. And it is only in that way that we can think of this Friday as good. Christ goes to the greatest length imaginable to display his love for us as well as the severity of our sin by entering into death itself so that we might again have the offer of life extended to us. And that's what we remember on this day. Christ has taken on death that should have been ours, so that we may have life with him. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 